Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast, a monthly podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. I'm Alana, and I'm a second year resident at Yale. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Cynthia Emery. Dr. Emery is an associate professor and the vice chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina. She is an orthopedic oncologist and specializes in bone and soft tissue tumors. Dr. Emery takes an active role in leadership in the field of orthopedics and is on numerous committees in prominent orthopedic societies, including the Academy, the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, the Musculoskeletal Tumor Society, and the American Orthopedic Association. She is a reviewer for the Journal of Surgical Orthopedic Advances, Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research, and the Journal of Knee Surgery. Additionally, she is the PI on multiple grants and is a prolific researcher. As a resident with a keen interest in the field of orthopedic oncology, I was extremely excited to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Emery. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Dr. Cynthia Emery. Welcome to the She Can Fix It podcast. With us today, we have Dr. Cynthia Emery um, at Wake Forest. Uh, Dr. Emery, thank you so much for being here with us today. I know that you are very busy and have many things that you need to do. So I do appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Happy to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Perfect. Um, so the first thing that I would like to do is just to have our listeners um, kind of learn about who you are. So I was wondering in your own words, if you can describe your background from medical school all the way through residency fellowship and your post-fellowship years. Of course. I grew up primarily in the South. So I went to undergrad at the University of Georgia and then went about an hour, a little over an hour away to Augusta for medical school at the Medical College of Georgia. And from there, I did a rotation up at Wake Forest as a fourth-year student based on the recommendation of a couple of my mentors that were at uh, in Augusta at the time, Walt Crow and Monty Hunter. So I rotated up at Wake Forest for a month and really liked it. Ended up matching here as a resident and completed my residency. And then after five years, went to Miami for a fellowship in orthopedic oncology and then returned to Wake Forest after my fellowship and have been here on faculty since 2010. Wow, that's phenomenal. So did you? how did you like Florida? That must have been a very different change from being in North Carolina. Miami is sort of like a different country, uh, so it's just a, it's a very different environment. I, um, it was fun for a year. The training was unbelievable. Very complex cases, complex patients, a lot of variety, a lot of volume, uh, but I did realize that I'm not a big city girl. <laughs> awesome. Phenomenal. Um, I was wondering that if you can talk about the beginning of your orthopedic journey, when did you know you wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon? I actually considered orthopedics in uh, high school. Really? Uh, I did an independent study in anatomy and physiology and really loved anatomy. And then I did another independent study in biomechanics and really enjoyed that concept and those ideas. And so I was looking for something that combined those two. Mm -hmm. In middle school and high school, I was always like in the math science 
type of accelerated classes. And so those are the things that I really enjoyed. Um, and so I started thinking about orthopedics, not really sure how I came up with the idea. My, well, there's no other doctors in my family or anything like that, but my parents were always very supportive and, and started thinking about orthopedic surgery and never really wavered from it. I had a, the intent to go into or to, to go into sports medicine. Um, when I started residency, my mentors were sports med uh, docs and I was a athlete in high school and played junior Olympic and whatnot for volleyball. Mm-hmm. So I always had the intent to go into sports medicine, but then ended up switching to pretty much the exact opposite <laughs> of sports medicine uh, when I became a second year resident and wow. did an oncology rotation. Wow. What was it about orthopedic oncology? And first of all, um, for our listeners who are not familiar with orthopedic oncology, it is one of the uh, more unique specialties of orthopedics in that you deal with bone and soft tissue tumors. Would you kind of agree or how would you describe your specialty? Exactly. So when I meet patients in the office, typically I'll tell patients that I see patients with lumps and bumps of all different kinds in the bone and in the muscle, pretty much anywhere in the body. Hmm. Wow. What was it about orthopedic oncology that drew you to that field? Because it is one of the more kind of unique fields uh, within orthopedics. It is. We're we're a small group that pursue orthopedic oncology. I like the the variety of surgeries that I get to do. In one day, I may take out a lipoma. I may take out half of a pelvis. I may take out a proximal femur and reconstruct it. And so I like having the variety of surgeries that I can do, different parts of the body, things that involve bone, that involve soft tissue, nerve, blood vessels. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also enjoy the interactions of patients and their families. Phenomenal. Um, You spoke about the reason why you thought you were going to go into sports medicine was because your mentors were sports medicine physicians. Did you find that the majority of your mentors were male surgeons, or do you think that most of the mentors that you had were female surgeons, or were there other female um, residents who kind of helped you along your path? I had never seen a woman orthopedic surgeon until I was a resident. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all of my mentors were uh, Caucasian males. Mm -hmm. Especially in the South, that's primarily the demographic uh, for orthopedic surgeons. And so that, for me, the idea was, it never really occurred to me that women can be orthopedic surgeons or that there were others out that were out there. Uh, So when I considered doing it for a specialty, my my mentors were always very supportive. Uh, But that was really all I ever knew. So I had some fabulous mentors that that were male surgeons. Right. Awesome. It's, I think it's very interesting that you had decided to go into orthopedic surgery like in high school because I, I think that's unique in the sense that I think the literature has shown that like the male medical students tend to have an earlier um, idea of the fact that they want to do ortho. So I think it was interesting uh, that you wanted to do orthopedic surgery um, in high school. So that's phenomenal. Um, I do kind of want to talk about your residency experience. Were there other female residents in your program, or were you kind of one of the lone female residents at Wake Forest? Uh, There were a couple of other women who were residents uh, in the years ahead of me. 
uh, during my residency training. When I rotated up here as a student, I was able to work uh, with a couple of women senior residents, and they were really impactful uh, when I spent some time with them, and they talked with me about orthopedics as a career and really gave me some, some great insight about, especially about Wake Forest, how this program, I never, I've never felt like a woman orthopedic surgeon here. Mm-hmm. I've felt like an orthopedic surgeon. And that hasn't been it hasn't been an issue here, and so I'm, I'm grateful to be in an environment like that because I've heard that there can be some instances where you're treated differently because you're a woman. Right. No, that's phenomenal. Was it important to you when you were looking at residency programs that there were females, or was that something where you had just enjoyed the culture and wake for it in an, as the program where it didn't really matter whether or not there were female residents there? I think you can always, things can always be a little bit easier when you're not the one and only of something. So being the end of one, even though I do orthopedic oncology where we have a lot of those, Mm -hmm. uh, I think there is some benefit in having other people who are maybe a little bit more like you uh, in the same program at the same time or someone who has gone through that first. When you're the first woman going through a program, I think it does create some anxiety both for that person as well as for the program because it's new and it's different and orthopedic surgeons aren't historically, and surgeons in general aren't historically known to be really adaptive to change. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of things can be a little bit intimidating to people. Awesome. Um, I do kind of want to transition to one of the areas in which you excel, and that is patient care. Um, When I was researching, you know, many people had recommended that I speak to you, and one of the things that was most striking about, you know, just kind of learning about you was the fact that you have a 4.8 star rating based on 112 reviews, um, which is just such an accomplishment, so congratulations to that. Um, Yeah, I was just wondering, what do you think, like, what advice do you have for surgeons in training? Because I think it's important to remember that we are doctors before we become surgeons. So so I was wondering what it is that you do that kind of allows you to excel at patient care. Um, It's taken a fair amount of work. Uh, One of the things that I think patients really appreciate is my honesty and transparency and I sit down and I talk with them so I do all of my charting outside of the room I don't sit in the room with my back to the patient and I think that first impression that you leave with the patient and their family is so critical you Mm -hmm. have to take the time especially if I'm diagnosing a teenager with an osteosarcoma that's going to be an hour office visit and my patients who are established and they're coming back for return follow-ups they understand that their visit once they're sort of in maintenance mode maybe 10 minutes versus the first time that I meet somebody may take close to an hour Mm -hmm. because you really want to make sure that you give them the time to answer those questions to take things in to talk about what does this diagnosis mean and what is the next what do the next several months or even next several years look like a few years ago, we, our hospital made the decision to start posting patient comments on our website. Oh, no. uh, and there was a lot of initial, there was a lot of concern from providers initially thinking, okay, these aren't going to be screened, they're not going to be filtered. Basically, anytime a patient writes a comment, as long as it didn't include patient health information, it's going to be included under our profile. And so there was a lot of concern, but overwhelmingly, our doctors here are really fabulous. And our patients, you know, we take the time that we need to with our patients. And I think that they show that their gratitude through those those ratings. Wow, that's phenomenal. 
Do you think that orthopedic oncology is a field in which it requires a little bit more of that patient-physician interaction than maybe some of the other specialties? Absolutely. A lot of orthopedics is episodic. You find a problem, you fix it, and the patient gets better, and then you say, okay, great, call me if you need me. Mm -hmm. I may have a few patients like that in my practice, someone with an osteochondroma or someone with a lipoma that we really don't need long-term follow-up, but most of my patients are coming back to see me on a regular basis. And so having those relationships, developing that rapport, looking at patients by their name, not by the case that they had done or by the surgery that they had done, I think is probably one of the big distinguishing things with our patient population. Yeah. Oh, goodness. That's amazing. Um, I do want to take a spin and talk about your research work and your grant work. Um, I, you, thank you for sending me your CV. It's a very, so impressive, many pages long, um, and it's just shows many years of hard work and dedication. And I know that this is a rather broad question, but I was wondering if you could just kind of um, talk about uh, your research um, and what you've kind of pursued uh, for our listeners. Sure. So when I, as a resident, I wasn't too interested in research, in all honesty. It, I viewed it more as a medical student and as a resident as something that I needed to do in order to get into residency, to right. get into your fellowship, to get a, a position. Um, and I found that probably the reason that I wasn't as engaged in research was because I was helping other faculty members with their research projects and things that they were mm -hmm. passionate about. And I wasn't quite as enthusiastic about it. And so when I became a faculty member here and I started to develop my own research ideas, I realized I really enjoyed it. And so I was able to pursue research in um, radiation-induced effects that following soft tissue sarcoma resection. Uh, we were also part of a multi-center clinical trial to help investigate a new device, which eventually led to FDA approval mm -hmm. and is now being used in our health system. Mm -hmm. And so that was really uh, that was really an interesting uh, process going through the the clinical trial and collecting all the different patients and the outcomes and you know, the two-year follow-up. And, and so that was, that was really very gratifying. Mm -hmm. um, at Wake Forest, we also have a seven-year physician scientist program. And so we have one resident who, prior to starting the orthopedic part of their residency, they spend two years as a graduate student completing mm -hmm. all their PhD coursework. And so I've worked with several of our PhD students on various things, but things that were related to cancer, metastatic disease progression, or radiation fibrosis, worked with them when they were um, graduate students, and then continued to work with them on the more translational component of their research during their orthopedic residency. Mm. And so that's been a little bit of a difference then, and really very interesting, and, and I've enjoyed mentoring them kind of all through the, that path. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you have written numerous grants, and I think that grant writing is something that I've becoming to learn is really a skill. So, and which is something that you started as a faculty member. How did you become proficient at writing grants? Well, I don't know that I would say I'm proficient at writing <laughs> grants at this point. Uh, I certainly write a lot of them that don't get funded, uh, but that I've come to realize that that is part of part of the whole grant writing process. There are a couple of grant writing workshops that I attended as an early faculty member. Mm -hmm. One was the U.S. Bone and Joint Initiative. Um, 
grant mentoring workshop. And so that's a two-stage uh, workshop where you bring your specific aims and they actually have a mock study section and you can go through and, and have your grant torn apart. Mm-hmm. And then you go back the second time around uh, to, for more of that fun. Right. Uh, but it is very helpful. And then the uh, AOS, OREF, they have a great um, grant writing or professional development clinical scholar uh, workshop. And so both of those I thought were very helpful as an early career faculty member for really how to be articulate with my specific aims, my research design, my proposal, um, and, and how to move forward and, and really ask those important questions where people are going to read my proposal and say, oh, that's really very important. I want to fund that. That's different than mm-hmm. some of the other things that I've seen. Hmm. Awesome. I do want to take a moment uh, to talk about the craft of orthopedic surgery Um, because I know that there are many important things about women in orthopedics that we do want to talk about, but at the end of the day, we are orthopedic surgeons, and especially you as an orthopedic oncologist, you operate everywhere, and it's not just doing, you know, a hip and a knee, or not just doing, I don't mean to offend any of the joint replacement surgeons out there, but um, I would like to talk about how you perfect your craft as an orthopedic oncologist, especially because of the fact that what you do every single day is so variable? It's, um, I would say it's always a work in progress. Uh, when I pre-op, when I do pre-op conference with the residents and we'll discuss the patients that we have scheduled for surgery that week and we review their imaging and we talk about, okay, what's the plan? You know, mm-hmm. what's your plan? What, what if that doesn't work? What's your plan B? And so I say that's one of the critical things that you have to have as an orthopedic oncologist is at least a plan A, a plan B, if not a plan C. So for instance, this past weekend, I was doing a surgery on Saturday and plan A, B, and C didn't work out. So we had to go to plans D and E. Uh, And so being able to think on your feet and be creative, uh, if something in a case, you know, is not going well, or if there's an unanticipated event or consequence that comes up, how do you troubleshoot? Mm -hmm. Um, It also allows us to be creative, especially with orthopedic oncology. We can really be creative with the way that we reconstruct things, the way that we remove things. Um, And so I think it affords a lot of the, maybe more of the right-brained activities that that we can employ in the OR. Right. No, that's awesome. Um, Were the tricks that you learned to become more proficient, were those tricks that you learned when you were in residency and you kind of just like, all right, like, or do you have specific techniques that you use in order to make sure that you are better the next day? Or was it your training as an athlete and a volleyball player? Or what is it that has allowed you to kind of continue to perfect your skills as you go on in your career? I think having a continued desire for, for improvement and receiving feedback is critical. So mm-hmm. you start to develop those skills as a resident. Uh, you learn from numerous faculty, you learn from senior residents that you've worked with, and you see things that you like and that you want to adopt, and you also see things that maybe you think, okay, I would do that differently. Mm-hmm. But both of those things are very valuable, and you can store those in your, you know, in your, in your brain. And then during fellowship, I was really able to focus on specific things that are oncologic-related. I had three orthopedic oncologists with whom I trained, as well as a co-fellow, and we would we would talk about things openly. And and Corey was the other Corey Montgomery, and I were the two fellows at Miami. He's at Arkansas now, and we would talk about cases. We would do cases together, Mm -hmm. and we would talk about, oh, this didn't go very well, or here's what I did, or hey, what would you do for this? 
Right. And so all of those things build over time. And, and now when I have a complicated surgery coming up, sometimes I'll ask some of my partners maybe who are in trauma or who are in joints, that, hey, what would you do with this? Or how would you treat this if right. it wasn't a tumor? Mm-hmm. Uh, just to get some ideas. Uh, and, of course, I have a senior partner here, Scott Wilson, uh, and he and I, if we have a very complicated case, we'll often do those together. And it's, it's really been very helpful to see how other people may handle different things, gives mm-hmm. me some ideas. And then, and then the other thing that I really try to emphasize with the residents at the end of every case is we'll go through with the surgery, what did you do well? Uh, you know, what went well during the surgery? What would you have done differently? And what did you learn? I think that's a really important foundation for every surgery that if a resident's not learning something, if we're not all learning something at the end of every surgery, then we've missed an opportunity. I do want to go a little bit off script if I can and talk sure. about leadership. Um, Cause I know that in looking at your CV, you are a part of many, many, many committees at, um, at your hospital. You're also part of the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, um, and you have numerous leadership positions. And now we're kind of getting at the stage in which women are becoming more present in leadership. And we just have our first female president of the AOS, of Dr. Christy Weber. And I was wondering if you can kind of talk about the importance of having women in leadership positions. Yeah, I've, I've known I've known Dr. Weber for a long time. She's also an orthopedic oncologist, and so uh, seeing her come into this position has really been phenomenal. Watching that over the years, and I think it's very important to have someone that you can look up to or someone that you can emulate and say, I want to be like them. I want that person as a role model. Uh, not necessarily that you have to have another woman as a role model, but I think it is important for young women to see that that women orthopedic surgeons can attain these leadership positions. Uh, here at Wake Forest, I was afforded a, a leadership position pretty early in my career. I was a second year faculty member and became medical director of all of our ambulatory clinics here. Wow. And so I had no idea what I was doing. But my uh, my mentor at the time, when he was retiring, you know, he said, Cynthia, you're the only one who can do this. And basically you know, flipped the keys onto my desk and said, I'm retiring, so you're going to be able to do this. Right. And you figure things out as you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Becoming, being a little uncomfortable with things is part of taking on a new leadership role and having that growth Mm -hmm. and knowing who your resources are to help you as you become more prominent in your organization, your department, uh, your regional societies, all the different opportunities that there are. And I would encourage women who are thinking about, well, how do I know if I want a leadership position is give it a shot. Exactly. Ah, love it. Um, I do want to talk about the future. Um, and I know that you, we are a kind of, uh, we are a type people, we have goals and we meet them and then we create new goals. And so I was wondering if you could talk about your future goals and projects clinically and your research and your leadership positions and all those sorts of things. Sure. So I, uh, I sort of joke around with my chair a little bit. Uh, we have our annual reviews around this time of year and for the past few years I've I've had a five-year plan mm-hmm. that I tell him, you know, this is what I'm anticipating for my, my short-term goals and my intermediate-term goals. And, and each year, sometimes there's some modifications from time to time. Uh, I've been vice chair of the department here since 2015. Wow. And, and uh, most, most recently assumed an associate chief medical officer role here with the department with all of our surgical services. Mm -hmm. And so I enjoy having that leadership role within our institution, uh, as well as having 
a leadership role within our department, I would envision those things would stay the same. And mm-hmm. I'm becoming more involved with our regional organizations, the Eastern Orthopedic Association, the Southern Orthopedic Association, AOA. Uh, I enjoy working with all those organizations. And mm-hmm. so for me, I think the hardest part is figuring out where to optimize how I spend my time, mm-hmm. right? I'd like to be part of all these organizations. Right. I'd like to have leadership roles in all these organizations, but realistically, I can't do everything mm-hmm. in every organization. And so for me, figuring that out is going to be the, the biggest challenge. Nice. Well done. Um, well, I know that you have many things to do and patients to see. So I do want to take um, a few moments to go through the final set of questions that I have. And this is kind of a segment that I'm calling the final five um, that I'm going to be asking every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so for my first question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So this is a little bit of a harder question for an oncologist versus a joint surgeon, right? Yeah. <laughs> <But, laughs> uh, I would say my favorite, uh, my favorite procedure to do is a proximal femur replacement. Mm. Um, and the reason that I like that, that procedure is that the anatomy, the exposure and the, what the residents can learn from that is really profound when they see a proximal femur replacement and then they go do a regular hip replacement they can appreciate all the different anatomy all the anatomy that they weren't able to see on Mm -hmm. a standard hip replacement and the gratifying thing is post-op patients are up walking so i'll do a proximal femur replacement whether it's for tumor but also for really just disaster proximal femur fractures that can't be fixed Mm -hmm. uh, or can't be replaced in a standard way and so i'll do the surgery on anyone from someone who's you know 20 years old to someone who I think I did a proximal femur replacement on someone who's 100 a few weeks ago. Wow. Um, so it just varies and, and watching them get up and being able to walk afterwards is really, really mm-hmm. powerful. That's amazing. Um, what are your go-to topics for grand round presentations? Typically for grand rounds, uh, when we look at the world of orthopedic oncology, there's not a whole lot that people are interested in who don't do orthopedic oncology, right? <laughs> they they want to know the basic things of, oh, how do I stay out of trouble, right? How right. do I not make a mistake? Mm-hmm. And so when I'm talking, when I'm giving an orthopedic oncology-based grand rounds to the general uh, orthopedic surgery audience, I try to look at basic principles of things that will impact their practice, right? Mm-hmm. How to stay out of trouble, what are some basic tenets for treating metastatic disease, because that's often treated by people of all different uh, specialties. Um, when I'm giving a, maybe a different uh, grand rounds to a different audience, I'll talk about leadership roles and leadership development, professional development, mentoring, sponsorship. Those mm-hmm. are the things that I like to talk about. What do you like to talk about with your own people when you have a whole room of orthopedic oncologists? What is your go-to grand rounds for that group? It varies. Oftentimes they'll ask for me to come and talk about soft tissue sarcoma Mm -hmm. or to talk about uh, maybe the device that we were part of a clinical trial with, sort of newer technology with orthopedic oncology, and to describe the purpose of uh, the the implant that we were putting through clinical trial. Awesome. Um, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? So two years ago at a musculoskeletal tumor society annual meeting, there was a resident, uh, 
she, I think at the time she was a fourth year resident and she came up to me and, and she, she looked familiar, but I couldn't, I didn't know her name. And she said, Dr. Emery, and she introduced herself and she said, I don't know if you remember me or not, but, uh, she said, you talked to my medical school class several years ago and you talked about orthopedic oncology and what drove you to going into that field. And she said, I just want to let you know that based on your talk, I, became interested in going into orthopedics and orthopedic Aww. oncology. And she said, and now I'm applying for a fellowship in orthopedic oncology. So oh my gosh. She came over to thank me for influencing her career path. Wow. Oh, it's such a heartwarming story. <laughs> yeah, those, those are the reasons that we like mentoring and sponsoring and doing things like the Perry Initiative. Mm-hmm. And if you can impact even one person, it makes it worthwhile. Yeah. Oh, phenomenal. So I know that we are surgeons and that we do like to operate and we spend certainly a lot of time in the hospital, but what are your favorite activities to do outside of the operating room? I think it's important that everybody has something outside of work to Mm -hmm. do, to offload. Uh, For me, it's uh, primarily volleyball. Yeah. Uh, so I still play. You know, I've played all through high school and college and oh, nice. and all that stuff. I actually yeah. didn't even tear my – I made it all the way through and didn't tear my ACL until I was already a third-year medical student oh, no. and tore my ACL in between rotations. So that oh, was not gosh. really optimal as far as timing goes. <laughs> uh, but I was able to have it reconstructed and got back into playing. And so I play on a couple city leagues here in town. Oh, nice. And then when I'm not playing volleyball, I enjoy having – we have a fitness center in our house, so I enjoy having that time to either be on the treadmill or the elliptical right. or doing weights. Are you like an indoor or are you outdoor, like sand volleyball, or are you always indoor? Primarily indoor. Yeah. Um, in the summertime, we'll play outdoor in the like grass threes right. or twos. Oh, nice. And so my last question for you, Dr. Emery, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? I would say the best advice I would have uh, goes back a little bit to what I was talking about earlier is to always have a plan mm-hmm. and a plan B. And whether that's your plan for surgery or whether that's the plan for your future, there may be things that you want that end up not working out. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, a medical student may not match into their first choice for residency. Right. That doesn't mean that they're not going to be a successful orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. Right? That just means that their learning opportunity is going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. For newer faculty members, not getting that position, not getting that grant doesn't mean that you're not qualified. Mm-hmm. It just means that there's a different opportunity. So always looking at what other opportunities can come from maybe an initial disappointment, I think is really important to have that, just to have that idea. Phenomenal. Um, well, Dr. Emery, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really do appreciate it. And I sincerely wish you the best of luck. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the time to talk today. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Cynthia Emery. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or YouTube. You can find us on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. Finally, I want to thank all the listeners who are taking the time to listen to our podcast. 
We are all very busy people, so I do sincerely appreciate it. Please subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, please spread the word. Please tell your friends, your mentors, your medical students. If you have any questions or would like to hear a friend or mentor on this podcast, please feel free to email us at shecanfixitpod at gmail.com. I would like to take a moment to thank those who helped to make this podcast possible. A sincere thank you to Dr. Mary O'Connor for her mentorship in creating this podcast. Thank you to the amazing attendings here at Yale, Dr. Carrie Swigert, Dr. Adrian Sochi, Dr. Elizabeth Gardner, and Dr. Andy Halim for being exemplary role models for all of us. And finally, many, many thanks to my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanniekirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode with Dr. Cynthia Emery, and we hope to bring you more great interviews on the She Can Fix It podcast.